In a couple of moments, I want to open up um, Colossians 1 and just look at Paul describing his, his prayer life for a church um, there in Colossians 1. It's on page 1715. I wanted to reassure you, just listening to what people were saying there, that um, I don't only come to this church because you pay me. <laughs> um, you know, we're heart and soul. This is it's such a precious thing to be part of a, a church family where you feel like, oh my goodness, this is, you just love these people so much, love you all so much, and love the love that you show to us as well. And um, so much hope and anticipation for everything that God's doing in us right now and will continue to do in us, but also thankfulness as we think back on what's happened the last couple of years. Um, let me quickly read the passage to you, and then we're going to just we're just going to open it up and, and trust that the same Spirit who's been speaking to us, leading us, will come and just do His work in our hearts again today. Colossians one, just read the first eight verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. He's writing to a church he's never visited; he didn't plant. So it's quite interesting to see how does he write to a church that he wasn't involved in establishing. He normally was. He says, grace to you, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. It seems that Epaphras planted this church and now Paul's going to write into them and he's, what does he say? We thank God for you. You know, there's a saying, um, I, I don't really hear it much these days, but when I was younger and you'd meet these um, aunties who were, uh, you know, in church and stuff who were there when you were born and whatever. Actually, my real aunt is here today. Hi, Auntie Kath. Lovely. <laughs> um, one of the things that they'll say is, oh, I knew you when you were just a twinkle in your daddy's eye. What does that actually mean? you ever thought about what that saying means? It's when daddy had that amorous look in his eye towards his wife, and uh, nine months later, baby was born. I knew you when you were just, well, you didn't really, did you? But I knew you when you were just a twinkle in your, in your daddy's eye. And this idea that, you know, a child begins out of desire, out of um, love and in union, and what God brings out is a new life into the world, a person. And uh, in some ways, that's exactly how churches start. They begin as a twinkle in someone or a group of people's, their corporate eyes, and they, they begin dreaming and hoping, and through pain, uh, some of these guys here will testify to the pain that's been involved in trying to get this church started, the countless hours, the generosity, the selflessness. Um, something is born out of that, out of 
the passion. And uh, so churches, they start in the same way, a twinkle in our eyes. And uh, now we're here, we've all been impacted by grace, more or less. Some of you just arrived this morning, and so maybe just a little bit less than the rest of us. But we've all been impacted in some way by the existence of this church and by our relationships with one another and by our gathering here together to worship the same Savior and to hear from his, his word and its power into our lives. So what do you do when you arrive at your second birthday? And I think the right thing to do. So often in the Bible, when milestones are reached, there's a moment of worship, of reconsecration, of thanksgiving to God. When the Israelites crossed the river, they set up stones so that the future generations will never forget that it was God who did this work among them. And here we are. I want to show you what Paul does when he thinks about the establishment of a new church. And really, it just all spins around his thankfulness, his gratitude. I want to show you three things out of here. That our gratitude is the measure of our grasp of God's grace. That our need for grace goes much deeper than we think. And that the gospel is a channel of that grace to us. That's roughly where we're going when we look at this passage. And I want to begin here. That our gratitude is the measure of our grasp or our understanding, our comprehension of the grace of God. We think that we understand grace because we've heard it a hundred times, thousand times through you know, our understanding of the gospel, that God's grace is his love to us given freely through his son, Jesus Christ. And we think we get it, but what, how do you know that you've really understood grace? And I think the answer is always in the, the measure of your gratitude to God. What do I mean? Well, you think about what the Christian faith is. The Christian faith is basically a faith that's based around saying thank you to God. It's the acknowledgement, first of all, that you are empty-handed when you come to him. You'll be taught the path in so many faiths, and what you'll be taught is what you must bring to God, what you must do, what you must accumulate and accomplish to present to him for his acceptance and his pleasure. And Christianity says, no. It says you've got to repent not only of your sin, because, yeah, you've wronged, you've committed so much wrong against the living and holy God. His eyes are like fire. His presence causes men to fall on their faces in shame. But as Tim Keller often says, we also need to repent of all our good works. All of our lame efforts to bring ourselves to God and say, oh God, look what I've done. And our attempt to build up our sense of pride and identity upon what we have done and what we have accomplished in life. And he says we need to repent of it all. The gospel tells us we've got to repent of it all and come to him empty-handed. With our accounts empty, with our pockets empty, in total dependence upon him. Now, isn't it when you're in a place of absolute dependence that you must rely upon others and say thank you for every good thing that you receive? Well, that's exactly where the Christian faith puts you. It tells you how utterly dejected and, and, and totally um, poor you are without Christ and says you've got to come to him with absolute gratitude and receive, receive, receive because his grace pours out to you freely. Now, when we think about the establishment of a church, a church plant. And when Paul's thinking about what's happened in Colossae, I want to show you that he, he thinks of it in exactly the same terms. 
the thing he does is he pours out his heart in thanksgiving to God. Every time he thinks about this new church over in that city, which he's never been to, his heart bursts out in thanksgiving to God because he sees it all as a work of the grace of God. Over in 1 Corinthians 3, he talks about church planting very specifically. This is what he says about it. He says, he's talking about himself and Apollos, two guys who plant churches in city after city. You can imagine the kind of, like they're brothers in arms, but there's also this slightly competitive edge and this slightly kind of, like they've both got the similar passions. And, and he, says, he says, what's Apollos and what's Paul? Servants through whom you believed. It's a lot assigned to each. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, so he's saying, I went to Corinth and I started the church. And then Paul, Apollos came along and he continued teaching the church. That's what he means there. But he says, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So I'm nothing. Apollos is nothing. It's all the grace of God. It's all God. So when he writes to this church in Colossae and says, he starts to recapture for them what his heart and passion is for this church. What, is it, what does he say? He says, we thank God. He doesn't say, I'm so proud of Epaphras. What a legend. I'm sure he felt something of that in his heart, but that's not his first instinctive reaction. He's, he's thinking, what is Paul? What's Epaphras? We're just servants. It's God who gave the growth. And neither does he have this kind of competitive comparison thing going on with Epaphras here. In a church he didn't plant. You know, we, we do this a little bit in our hearts when we're involved in leading churches. We look at other churches and if they're, you know, we compare. And it's one of the more sick black things that goes on in pastors' hearts. But we, we build our identity to some extent upon what's going on in our church lives. We constantly have to keep repenting of it and acknowledging, you know, whether that church is doing better or worse. It doesn't matter because it's all coming from the grace of God. And Paul here, when he thinks about a church that he hasn't planted, instead of you know, being tempted to criticize a little bit or point out the differences to make himself feel better about the churches he's planted, you know, Philippi is so much better, so much more generous than Colossae. You know, do, instead of doing that kind of thing, he's, just, he's, almost, he's almost totally detached from that sense of personal identity and investment in the congregation. Instead, he says, we thank God. It doesn't matter whether I planted, Epaphras planted, Apollos planted, whoever planted, we thank God because it is a work of grace. He doesn't also chase Epaphras with his latest innovations in how to plant churches. You know, he's not hounding Epaphras to write more blogs and to write books on how to do contextual ministry and figure out the, the secrets, the ten secrets to planting a successful church. Because for Paul, what does he say? You plant, you water, but it's God who gives the growth. And that's why he has to say instinctively, the first thing he does is he thinks about this church. He says, we always thank God. Grace is revealed in your life by the degree to which you thank God. It's true for you personally. You think about who you are and what you've achieved in life and your walk with God and your relationship with Him and your relationship with other people and the good things you see in your life. Do you give thanks to God? Is your first reaction thanksgiving to God because it was all a gift of His grace and nothing, not one bit of it, did you deserve or earn? We always thank God. And the same is true when we think about this church. We've had some pretty smart and gifted people involved in this church. They're not the reason that we're seeing, enjoying this blessing. 
I can see Dan's parents smiling at each other because they know Dan's one of those guys. <laughs> We've had some precious people involved. We've had some generosity just pouring out love and we've had people give up their time, their service, their energies. But friends, none of that actually is ultimately the reason. When we ask why, why, why is God kind enough to do this? Not, here, not just here, but all over the world. This is grace. We always thank God. Our gratitude is the measure of our grasp of grace. Here's another thing. Our need for grace goes much deeper than we think. What do I mean? Well, I think we always thank God, don't we, when we see something more obviously, miraculously, and clearly a work of his hand. You know, us moving into a venue next week is something that I've been thanking God for. We thank God when we see people crossing the line of faith and come, you know, when we had that opportunity to baptize Warren, and we see the work of God going on in people's hearts here, and we think, we thank God for these things. We thank God for his extraordinary work in churches across the city. And some of the ways that when you see revival, you, you pour out in thanks for God. But when Paul thinks about this church in Colossae, what does he thank God for? He says, we, we always thank God when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus... And the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, what I want you to see is this. that When Paul thinks about the work of God in that church, in a way he has a much lower bar on what it is that he wants to give thanks for. He thinks about things that you and I would just sort of consider as just essentials, just the fundamentals of what it means to have a church. Faith, love, hope. You know, nothing necessarily you'd write home about. You know, if you went to visit a church, another church, and for the first Sunday, and you, you go home, you start telling your friends, how was it? And you go, oh my goodness, those people actually believe in Jesus. They, they have faith. Well, you, you shouldn't really be surprised by that, right? You know, it's a church, for goodness sake. Or you go there and you say, these people love each other. They actually talk to each other and they're friendly and they, they give of their time and energy and whatever to each other. Or they, they actually have a hope beyond this life. You know, none of this should be stuff to write home about. It's not particularly surprising. This is kind of the core essentials of what it means to have a church. You know, when guys plant churches, one of the things that they, they, they feel the need to do is to articulate a grand vision for where this church is going to go. And, you know, especially if you have to drum up support in terms of people to invest in it or resources, money. Money's key to getting a church off the ground. You can't really do it with empty pockets. And so when guys are thinking, well, I've got to plant a church, I need a compelling vision for people to buy into this. They think about all the amazing things that their future church is going to accomplish. And they say, our church is going to change this community. And then, you know, another guy comes along and thinks, it's got to be more impressive than that. We're going to change the city. You know, that's a pretty big, bold claim when you're a city of 10 million people. But our church is going to change the city. Or our church is going to change the world through trajectories of mission into every corner of the globe. Or our church is going to change Mars because you've got to be, you know, we're going to be colonizing Mars and we need to be thinking ahead and have a bigger vision than the guy who planted down the road in order to get people to invest. And actually, you know, no one on their vision document writes, our church is going to have faith in Jesus, love for each other, and a hope of heaven. Because people are going to look at that and be like, mm, maybe, maybe change your street or something. You know, maybe you can just think a little bit bigger than just faith, love, and hope. And Paul, man, his heart. The reason why he, he explodes in thanksgiving for a church where he sees faith, love, and hope is because he, 
He knows that's a miracle. When you have a church where people have real faith, faith that enables them to to place their lives in Christ's hands as their saviour, you have a church where the Spirit of God has worked a miracle in the hearts of those people. Because Paul tells us over in, in the book of Ephesians that faith is a gift from God. You know, you can't produce your own faith. He says, by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not your own doing, it's the gift of God. So wherever you see a church where people actually genuinely love and trust in Jesus, you see a a miraculous community there. The Holy Spirit did it. There's no other explanation. Same is true of love. Wherever you see a church where there's the love of God at work among that people, you know that that church is an answer to Jesus' prayers. I'm thinking about passages like this one in John 17 where he's, he's, thinking, he, he's praying, he's got his disciples around him and he's been praying for his disciples. But he says, I don't ask for these only, these 12 guys in this room, but also for all those who will, who will believe in me through their word. And he's thinking about you, actually. He starts turning his prayers out to a global scale. And he, this is what he prays for us. He says that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. He prays a bit further on that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So wherever you see a church where there's a oneness of spirit and the love in them that's clearly the love of Christ, you've got to recognize that's the stamp of God's power upon that people. It's a miracle. It's all all the more underlined when you think how costly and difficult it is to love people. It's easy to love people with whom you have a great deal in common, a common goal, common interest, common identity, common things in life. But actually, when you look at the church, more often than not, it's it's a hodgepodge, a mixture of people from all kinds of backgrounds and, and diverse contexts. And, you know, sociologists and psychologists can't really account for that unless you can say, look... There's a binding mechanism here, and it is the power of God. It's what Paul calls the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It's the love that Jesus prayed for to be in his people. And it's not like the love you see in the world, which is so often so reciprocal. I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. And if you don't scratch me back, I'm never going to scratch you again. You know, that's typically the way love works in the world. But in the church, love is pouring out without expectation of return. A lot of you guys have been doing that here. And you think about what your life group leaders do. Do you know every week they go to the shops, they buy food for you, to cook dinners for you. They never ask for payment and they never ask for thanks. But they do it because they love you. And some of you don't even bother telling them that you're not coming. Shame on you. <laughs> but they keep welcoming, keep in bringing you in. Some of you guys, you know, you work hard for your paychecks, but it's your priority at the end of every month to set aside a percentage that you've set in your heart. That is what I'm going to give to to the church and to God because it is love for me to give. A lot of you showed up early this morning. I walked into a hubbub at 9.30, people blowing up balloons and, you know, making sure this place was ready and welcoming. It's selfless love. And that's not even, you know... Your mind would be blown if you could see all the, the stuff that's going on in, in secret. 
this person who's calling that person, who's texting that person, who's meeting up with that person to make sure that we are experiencing love and community of, of Christ in this place. And hope also, hope is a miracle. Hope is born by the Holy Spirit, says in Romans 5. What, what I'm trying to say to you, friends, is that whenever you see a church with this just core essential stuff going on, you should be in awe that the work of God has been going on in that place. It doesn't, it's not about you know, how many neighborhoods or cities they've taken for Christ. It's about, goodness me, we always thank God when we think of your faith, your love, your hope. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. It challenges us in a few ways when you start to see church as a miracle in that way. Let me give you a few challenges. It challenges our view of, of how you plant churches. Because typically, you know, as I've alluded to, you want to have pretty rock-solid plans, a, a training scheme for people, and you want to have lots of money involved. But actually, when you start to see, as Paul does, that church is always a miracle, then it kind of realigns your expectations. You don't presume on the grace of God. You get on your knees and depend upon him to establish and form a church. Because only he can do it by the power of his spirit. Only he can form a community that loves Jesus and loves each other in this way. We want to plant churches in the future, but friends, if we lose sight of the fact that it's always a miracle, we're going to wear ourselves out trying man's methods when it is always the work of God. It challenges also our view of what success is. I don't know if it's just a particularly Western way of thinking, but I think it, we so often want to measure and compare and, and draw comparisons in terms of just you know, what they call metrics or you know, ways of measuring the success of churches. And I'm not saying that these things are irrelevant, but it's so interesting to me that they are so irrelevant to Paul when he writes to churches. Because he's not interested in you know, the numbers, the popularity, how slick they are. He's not interested in the stuff that attracts us and draws us to churches or says, gives us, causes us to give them the stamp of approval. That, that church is really going for it. That church is really rocking. What he's interested in is this, this, this core essentials of the faith. That, do they have faith in Jesus such that people in that congregation lay down their lives for Christ? Do they have love that's costly for one another? Do they have a hope of heaven? Because it just realigns how you think about what the church is and what is, what is the work of God and what is success in ministry. It also challenges our, you know, our pride and our hunger for recognition. We want to be part of something that's significant, world-shaking. That's why people join movements, whether it's political movements or NGOs and charities or why they work hard for causes. It's one of the reasons why people invest deeply and heavily in particular local churches. But friends, it's so interesting that in the Bible, when we think about what Jesus values in a church, it's really quite the unglamorous stuff. Do you have faith? Do you have love? Do you have hope? How refreshing that we can throw aside our Western worldly ways of thinking and get back to the core essentials of what it means to be a church that Jesus takes pleasure in. It also... When you start to see the church as being a miracle in this way, that we depend on God's grace for the, even the basics of what it means to have a church, it changes your perspective in, in a few beautiful ways. 
For one thing, you can't, when you're part of a church and you think this way, you can't anymore focus on the negatives of the things that are missing or the things you would fix or the things you would change to make this a better church. There's a place for that. That's part of the reason why Paul writes to churches is because none of them are perfect communities. And we constantly have to be tweaking and changing them. But some people sit in that like a swamp of negativity because they fail to recognize the grace of God for which they must give thanks. And when I think about all the things that we have to address and to keep working on and to hoping for and praying for, I think, yeah, there's a part of me that wants to be engaged with all of that. But I never want to lose sight of God's generosity that we even exist, that we are a people, that we have faith, that we have love, that we have hope. It changes your perspective also in this way, that you can't take your church for granted or be apathetic. You know, a lot of people, we we even heard in the testimonies that you can just go through the motions or you can be one foot in and one foot out because you failed fully to appreciate the miraculous nature of what a church is. But when your heart is awed by the grace of God at work in a community, you have to give yourself completely to it in faithfulness, in devotion, and in gratitude to God. There's also like an, 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 awe, an awe and an expectation every time you're with the people of God. God is here doing something that cannot be replicated in the world. It is only the work of God. It changes your perspective in this way, this way also, that you can't keep it to yourself. If what we have among us What was coming through in those testimonies, what resonates in so many of our hearts, is truly a work of the living God. We can't keep this to ourselves. The church is in so many ways the hope of the world. It is Christ's vehicle through which he pours his blessing out into individuals and families and then societies. We don't keep it to ourselves. The church is a a family with wide open arms saying, friends, come and join in. Be part of the family of God. Experience his love. Isn't that what resonates so powerfully through Jesus' parables when he says, go into the the byways and the hedgerows and go and find all the, the people who are most rejected in the world and bring them into your family. Welcome them into the banquet hall. Our need for grace goes much deeper than we think. We depend on God for the basics. Here's the last thing I want to say to you. The gospel is the channel through which God's grace comes to us. He talks as he goes on. He says about this hope. He says, of this you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. There it is. Verse verse 5. Which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood it. Understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. So here's a question. When you think about what a healthy church is, as we've been describing it, and when you think about how that's a work of God among a people, how is it that that happens? How does it come to be born? How does it come? How does a people of, the people of God come to experience His grace in this way so that their lives are reoriented and transformed and changed and new things are happening as God's Spirit is sparking in different people's lives in extraordinary ways? How does that all come to be? And Paul says quite simply 
it came when you heard and understood the gospel. I love that because it, you know, the closest thing I can think of by way of analogy is, is this, that the gospel is like a seed. That's how Jesus spoke about it, actually. A seed looks pretty unimpressive, doesn't it? It's got a hard little shell. It's dry, cold, and it seems totally lifeless. But when seeds are scattered, something remarkable begins to happen as they take root, as they begin to reach for the sun, and as water begins to energize and activate all the programming within that seed. And the multiplication happens. Power happens. And that's how churches work. The gospel is shared repeatedly, ceaselessly. The message of God's extraordinary love towards you. A love that did not want to leave you in the pit of your despair and of your separation from him. The love that said, I'm going to rescue you and I'm going to do it entirely by my own power for your benefit. And so sent Jesus as the first missionary into the world. The incarnate Son of God. The Son of God taking on human flesh. So that he could live the life that you could not live. Live a perfect life. Live a pure, undefiled, blameless, upright life. Never a moment of sin or defilement in his heart. And then be brutally murdered so that he could take all the wrath of God against sin upon his shoulders in your place. Wherever this message went, Paul had found, and Epaphras had also found, wherever this was heard and understood, as he put it here, it started doing this thing. It said, he says it starts bearing fruit and increasing. It has this extraordinary power. People get it. They start feeling overwhelmed by the love of God, the grace of God, that he should give his son for them. Their heart meets the message in faith and they grasp it and say, I think it's true and I think it's true for me. I think that this is a true story. I think Jesus did this for me. And as faith is born in their heart and they take hold of this message of the grace of God, his free generosity to you, the exploding result is all this transformation. As God brings more and more grace to his people and in churches. And the reason why I draw attention to that is because it gives me incredible sense of confidence. I'm not left guessing how we as a church have come to exist or the power that was at work in us that, this, that we can be here. It was the gospel. It's always the gospel. It's what binds us together. It's what puts us under the grace of God, enables us to receive and enjoy it. And I'm not apathetic then about our future calling to keep multiplying. Because I know with absolute certainty that wherever we start sowing the seed, God's going to bring about new communities of grace like this one. We're going to see it maybe a few streets away when we plant new congregations in other parts of town. Maybe worlds away in other continents. I'm not trying to say this to you as my kind of church planter vision statement. It's there in my heart, but I think it's just the natural thing that the gospel does. What does he say? He says, 
in the whole world, it's bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. It's natural, isn't it, that at some point as a church grows up like a tree that starts from a seed, it's going to give birth to more seeds. And friends, I I think it's precious for us to pause and give thanks to God that it's all been his grace that we've arrived at this point a couple years in. But we also want to have one eye on the future. We want to have one eye looking forward that the passion, the passion that's driven us to this point is going to give birth. And there are new churches that we're going to give birth to with just a twinkle in our eyes at the moment. But praise God, we're here to send out people into the mission field, to establish new communities, to see not just people changed here so that we can just put them on our platform and say, hey, how's God's changed your life? But we're going to see that happen across the world in different places, through different communities. And it's all going to be the work of God, His grace to us. Well, I want to pray and I want us to give thanks to God together. Let's just consciously approach God in thanksgiving. We've been giving thanks already. But friends, I want to voice a prayer that I hope you can all agree with. And we can all say amen to you. Father God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. He has become more precious to us than any possession or any other person. His selfless love poured out for us has captured our hearts and our imaginations. And our lives are lived now as a response to his love. Our lives are lived out in love because he loved us first. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the word of the gospel. Thank you that its powerful seed has been planted in our hearts. And you freed us from shame. You freed us from a sense of being exiled from your presence. You freed us from a sense of being dirty and defiled by our wrongdoing. And you brought us into the liberty of what it means to be a child of God. Not that we ever look upon our own hearts and see ourselves as perfect. We're not. But that we look upon your son and see him as an all-sufficient savior. And thank you, Lord God, that that same gospel has brought to bear its fruit, not only in our lives as individuals, but in bringing around about this community. And Lord, what you've done here in us, you're doing all across the world as your gospel bears fruit and multiplies everywhere. Praise you for that. Thank you for that, Lord. Father, we want to have the right posture before you when we enter church, when we engage with your family. We want to be full of thanksgiving, not taking it for granted, but recognizing the miraculous work of your powerful Holy Spirit wherever your people are gathered in your name. And Father, may you enable us to multiply this work in other parts of the city and across the world. And raise up through us, Lord, many people who will carry this. Father, I want to pray for Reality Church as they start over in Covent Garden this morning. Lord, I thank you for Tim Chaddick. The great risks he's taken in leaving his 
amazingly established large church in LA to come and be an unknown church planter here in London. And Father, I pray that your power will be with them, that, Lord God, you will do an amazing work, not only in Tim and his family, but through that church, Lord God, to raise up a mighty church in the center of this city. Lord, we want to see that happen a thousand and more times across London. But, Lord God, we want to get behind them with our hearts in prayer and say, Lord God, wherever you, this, if this is a miracle that forms your church, then, Lord, do that miracle there as well. Bring to them people who will serve passionately, devotedly, generous people, Lord God. Enable them to, to win many souls for Christ. And be with them, we pray in Jesus' name. Lord, as we put ourselves before you again to take this communion, we want to do it with celebration in our hearts, with thanksgiving. Our rock, our redeemer, thank you that we rely on you entirely and you are totally capable to save. Amen. Amen.